Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Today, we've got Carl Smith. He's an economist. He's a columnist with Bloomberg View. Um, and, and we're going to try to explore monetary policy, which nobody understands. Everybody thinks is boring, but is incredibly important. Carl's like a really great original thinker on this topic. I think he's got a perspective on what's going on today in the economy, what's been going on during the Obama years that a lot of people miss, but that explains so much about what's happening. Here we go. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm joined today by Carl Smith, is a columnist for Bloomberg View and one of my favorite uh, economics Twitter followers, uh, a, a wise man in general. Um, so I'm really gl- glad to have you here. I, I want to start up talking about talking about a joke. Okay, uh, so I saw you tweeting. Somebody had a picture of like a McDonald's help wanted sign, and they were like fourteen dollars an hour and listing all their benefits, and because this is like. The economy is getting better. And and you said uh, capitalism has only now, just now, really been tried. And right. so what, what did you mean by that? Well, so, uh, I mean, the joke obviously plays off of the uh, saying that real socialism has never been tried. And my point was that, like, so real capitalism depends upon uh, a tight labor market. It depends upon the fact that most people who are going to look for a job can find a job. And anybody who's been in the U.S. economy over the last 20 years knows that that's not true. That hasn't been what we've experienced. And so you might think, and I think a lot of millennials think, that this is just how capitalism is, that, you know, uh, you're at the mercy of these companies, and if, if employers want to pick you, you have no choice. But but that isn't how it is. That, that wasn't how it was in the 90s when I grew up. That wasn't how it was through much of the, the 60s. And the difference between sort of now and then is that we have like a full employment economy. Um, I think we're going to talk about this, but like uh, that the Fed is doing its job and that um, Part of the economy that's called, you know, monetary policy or part of government policy called monetary policy, it's doing what it's supposed to do. But like even hardcore sort of free market activists, you know, Milton Friedman, people like that, were pretty intent that like if the if monetary policy isn't right, if there aren't jobs for everybody who wants them, then basically everything that we say in like free market economics is like BS. It's like it doesn't work. Let's talk about the history, right? So 2000, there's a stock market crash, there's a recession, and we're now 19 years later, right? And I think this is part of what you're saying, right? This mm-hmm. is the the change of, of view that you want to introduce. It's like 
this whole time, right? Like if you're a, a millennial, if you're even slightly younger than me, this has been your whole adult life. And the labor market has been like, how can you tell? Like, like, like so, what's what's been wrong? So the things that we can tell have been wrong are that um, number one, that like uh, inflation has tended like lower and lower and lower over this time, and in fact has gotten so low that like. Um, the Federal Reserve is below where they would ideally like it. So most people think inflation is bad. So when prices go up, that's bad. Right. I like cheap stuff. Right? Yeah, you like cheap stuff. And so we try to keep prices like not not going up too much. But one of the sort of like like deep insights in the macroeconomics is that there is at least at least in the short term, there's kind of a trade-off in the economy between having more inflation and having lower unemployment. So you've got to sort of choose like, you know, which one do you want? Do you want to do you want to focus on keeping inflation down or do you want to focus on keeping unemployment low? And what we've seen is that the Fed has like for the last 20 years, over and over and over again, chosen low inflation over low un- unemployment. And so we've seen unemployment persistently be higher than it has to be. And so we, what we've seen is like labor, the number of people who are looking for a job, who think that they can get a job, has gotten worse got worse and worse for years and years. Um, employers, we've noticed, you know, got like sort of more and more spoiled about the types of workers they could choose. Um, Everything about the labor market, you know, sort of told us that there was like more, there were more people out there who were, who were, able to work than we're working. Uh, but nonetheless, we didn't do the things, and maybe we'll talk about this, we didn't do the things that we needed to do to like remedy that situation. So, okay. So, you know, one sort of quick way to, to look at this is you can see that the share of like national economic pie that goes to wages has been trending downwards with some ups and downs, right. but, but it's lower it's than lower. it used to be. And so- I think to a lot of people, you know, if you look at a chart like that, what what will naturally come to mind, at least if you're like a, you know, you went to college, you've read some of this stuff, is like, oh yeah, all those Marxist college professors were right, right? <laughs> like the capitalists are getting over on all of us, and you know, we need, if not a revolution, um, if not like Bernie Sanders's political revolution, maybe Elizabeth Warren's uh, regulatory revolution, but like the the system is broken. Right. And uh-huh. you're saying, I mean, not that it's good, but that there's something short of revolution. Right. There's something short of revolution. So what I'm saying is that this is essentially how it works. Well, two things. Number one is that like even when we look over the long, long span of capitalism since the 1800s, right, um, labor has usually gotten somewhere around two-thirds or a little bit more of national income, and the rest has gone to capital or at one time it went to land. Labor's usually gotten somewhere somewhere around two-thirds, if not, if not a little bit more. And that was under conditions that you would think were like way less favorable to labor than they are now, right? So this was like before unions, before labor laws, before all that kind of stuff. You know, this is back in the, the sort of like dark uh, – Pre, like pre original progressives, mm-hmm. so era. like gilded age, <laughs> gilded age kind of stuff. But they still they still got that much. Okay, so how come something has changed all of a sudden right here at the you know after two thousand? That's one big question that was that was on the uh, economist's mind. But one thing that we know has changed is this thing that we were talking about is that the economy hasn't been sort of operating at at full employment. That we haven't had everybody who could be working working, and we haven't seen this, which is that which is something called like overheating, which is that the there's so so many employers out there looking for workers that they have to sort of compete against each other to like raise rates a little bit higher and a little bit higher and a little bit higher. And that sort of 
higher and higher cost of labor like slowly goes into prices. And so that's when we think that the economy is maybe going like a little bit too fast, like like they've hired up everyone they can hire and now it's just turned into a big bidding war and the bidding war turns into a price war and the prices go higher and higher. And so that's that's a uh, a potentially bad effect. And in the past, this used to happen sometimes. So sometimes the, the labor market would be loose and people had a hard time finding a job. Sometimes it would be tight and employers had a hard time finding a worker. But for the last 20 years, it's pretty much only been uh, bad for employees. It's only been that employers uh, that uh, potential employees had a hard time finding a job. So if you go if you go back in time, right? If you if you look at the economy of the 1950s, 1960s, early 1970s, right? You see, like recessions happen at that time. And typically they are calm, they're sort of deliberate, right? right? The Fed is engineering them uh-huh. because of exactly what you're talking about, right? It's like inflation is getting too high and so they throw the lever. Exactly. So so what, that's what exactly what we saw through the 1960s, 1970s, even early 1980s. Um, some people debate about whether the Fed got a little bit too lax on this in the late 1960s, and we didn't talk about that if we have time. But basically, the there would be recessions, but the recessions were intentionally caused by the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. And the reason they raised interest rates is because inflation was getting higher and higher and higher. So, you know, the 60s were probably up until you know, would be recently like this long stretch of like job growth and employers kept looking for more workers and more workers and more workers. They took on like, you know, people who would have otherwise not been considered for jobs. And so near the end of the 60s, the labor market started getting really tight. And so wages started going up. They started feeding in the prices and they started a couple of recessions, but, you know, they didn't sort of like go all the way. And so prices started to get a little bit higher in the 70s. Right. And so, yeah. So, so that's a process that we know will happen when you've gone out and you've been aggressive about like finding workers is that is that you'll be faced with this real in-your-face decision about can we keep unemployment low without sparking inflation. But for 20-some years, we've, we've had no, no inflation at all, even during the absolute best of times. Inflation has still trended down. Right now, we've had um, it's like no recession for what are we, what are we, a little over 10 years now. Um, are we at 10 years? But like um, – and we still see that inflation is going down, down, down. That means that we're not at that point. We're not at that high pressure point where sort of like workers are winning. And because they're winning, they're sort of forcing up costs for employers. So what specifically <laughs> could have been done differently, right? You hear some people say, well, look, interest rates, they've been really low. Like, what do you really want? We had this housing bubble. And also, I mean, I think to even be clear, most normal people have just have no idea, like, What's a Federal Reserve for? Like, what is monetary policy? And that's a lot to swallow. But just in in broad terms, right, we had uh, we had a, a sort of small recession at the beginning of this period. We had some kind of recovery. Then we had another one. And what what could have been done to generate this this real capitalism? Okay, so I don't know how much <laughs> how much we're going to explain all about monetary policy, but one of the basic ideas, or one of the sort of like deep sort of findings in macroeconomics is um, that like recessions and inflation are both kind of about how much money is in the economy. Right. So it seems like a kind of crazy idea. But when the when the Federal Reserve, who's in charge of how much money is in the economy, if you look on your dollar bills, it says Federal Reserve note. So when the Federal Reserve puts more money into the economy, people try to spend it. And when they spend it, that causes uh, businesses to try to hire more people. And that causes unemployment to go down. And so at least the first burst of like putting more money into the economy is that people spend it and people more people get jobs. And the way the Federal Reserve does that, essentially, 
um, is that it lowers interest rates and makes it easier for people to get loans. Um, it makes it easier for people to refinance their house. It makes it easier for businesses to invest. And so the first sort of spurt of spending that happens in the economy is usually some type of investment. Maybe it's housing. Maybe it's like like buildings, like what we call commercial real estate. Maybe it's like equipment. Maybe it's something like that. But it's usually something that has to do with investment is what goes first. And the, the Federal Reserve controls that. And so like what we usually want them to do is to keep interest rates low so that people will be able to invest more. The interesting thing about this period, and this is why I think it's been kind of bad, is that interest rates have been low, um, and in part because like uh, inflation is low. And when inflate, the higher inflation is, the more sort of savers want a higher interest rate so that their money won't lose value over time. So when inflation is low, interest rates can be kind of low too. But they can't go easy, they can't go below zero. And so we're kind of we're kind of in this area where we, interest rates are already low because inflation is low, but they're sort of stopped from getting super low because they can't go below zero. And what th what that means is that like um, the amount of sort of like extra oomph or extra encouragement that the Federal Reserve could give people from lowering interest rates is limited. So this happened in in two thousand eight yeah. two thousand nine. We saw this very clearly. Right at that point, there was no disagreement. The economy is in trouble. We got to do something. The Fed does its interest rate cuts, but it cuts them down to zero, uh -huh. and you can't go any lower. And then something something's got to give. Right. So what can you do? What people like me have said is that even though you've gotten to zero, your, your options aren't off the table. Because what a lot of businesses care about and what a lot of builders care about is long-term interest rates, how long interest rates are going to be you know, over not just today, but the next year, the next year, the next year after that. And so one of the things the Fed can do is say, look, we're going to promise to you guys that we're going to keep interest rates low for a long time, you can go ahead and build, you know, some new houses, new condos, new docks, new uh, warehouses. You can go ahead and do that and be confident that we're going to keep like financing pretty pretty easy for people for a long time in the future. If they say that, that increases the confidence of people to invest and increases the confidence in developers to develop and you'll see like a boom in development, right? That boom in development will start to like employ more people and then the economy will take off. What we had is that the Fed didn't say that. They sort of hemmed and hawed about what they might do and when they might do it. And they were like, well, interest rates are really low now, so hopefully that's good. But we don't know what we're going to do next week. And so they kind of kept people in this sort of like, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know when things are going to get like, when interest rates are going to go up state for about 10 years. And, and to try to spell this yeah. out a, a little <laughs> bit more, right? The idea is a, a building it lasts a long time, right? right? So <laughs> when you're trying to assess, there's certain, sometimes you take loans for short-term reasons, but these kind of big physical investments, the question is, am I going to be glad that this building is here 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now? So right. that longer-term picture mm. matters a lot. During most of this period, it, it seemed to me that the Fed's communications was preoccupied with assuring people um, about the other thing in the long term, right? That they that a lot of stuff was going on mm -hmm. because of the recession: interest rate cuts, fiscal stimulus, bailouts, weird meetings, and they wanted to reassure people that even though all this crazy stuff was happening, that there wasn't going to be inflation. Right. Right. They were saying, we're going to monitor this very carefully. We have this plan to unwind our special initiatives. 
And the problem is that that is reassuring, but it's it's almost too reassuring. Right. And it's reassuring about it's reassuring about the wrong thing. And so this is this is the complicated thing about monetary policy and why sometimes it gets like sort of shoved off or relegated off is that when people are doing these big investments, they have like two things that they have to worry about. Number one, you know, is inflation going to get out of control? Is that going to be destabilizing to the economy? Number two, is employment growth going to be weak and therefore there are not going to be a lot of people out there wanting to buy houses or wanting to use new warehouses or wanting to use any of the stuff that we're building right now. So we've got these two concerns on either side of them. And essentially the Fed was all about allaying the first concern. There wouldn't be an inflation. But they were really lukewarm about uh, about the second concern that there would be enough employment growth. Even when unemployment was as high as like 7.5%, they kept saying, well, maybe this is as good as it gets. Um, we think maybe you know unemployment will never go below 7%. So just be assured we're ready to like raise interest rates at any time to keep inflation from going up because I think we're, we're doing as well as we possibly can with unemployment. And that obviously just wasn't true. Unemployment could go way lower than that. So they kept telling everyone that like they're totally focused on this inflation side of the picture without being in, uh, focused on the employment side of the picture. And so we've had Essentially, for all in all, 20 years. I mean, there was a, there was maybe like a, the briefest period <laughs> around 2006 when things got okay for workers, but essentially like 20 years where most of the Fed's concern has been about calming people's fears of of inflation, and almost none of their concern has been about calming people's fears that there would be persistent unemployment. And so, a person could delve into these sort of exotic elements of this, right? And what other stuff could they have done at the zero bound? And I find I often lose people there. And so, what's really interesting about this is that starting in 2015, the Fed starts doing normal stuff to slow the economy, right? So we're so th there was a period of time, right? I would say roughly like 2009 through 2015 when there was an interesting debate about is there something outside the boundaries of normal steering uh -huh. that the Fed should be doing to boost growth. But then in 2015, the Federal Reserve it just raises the short-term interest rates. Right. And that's that's the normal Ever since the Federal Reserve has existed, sometimes they raise interest rates. You raise interest rates because you think the economy may be growing too fast. You think inflation may be around the corner. And I mean, what what was going on then? It's now four years ago. So around 2015, unemployment had been had been coming down, and it was probably a, the Fed thought about as good as it was going to get. Um, some. Some it was of, like in the four or five percent range. In the four or five range, right? Um, oil prices started going up a little bit. That's something that happens sometimes when the whole economy, when the global economy is growing. So oil is something that's traded around the world. Sometimes oil prices go up when the econ global economy is doing well. The Fed took that as a sign that they really needed to show people that they were serious. They were serious about like, you know, not letting inflation get out of hand. They were serious about like not actually letting employment go too low because their computer models tell them that if unemployment goes too low, the very next thing that's going to happen is out of control inflation. So they started to raise interest rates and that sort of like spooked people in the, in the markets. Um, 
they got a little bit scared. They sort of like slowed down uh, on their amount of investment they did. We saw global growth slow down a bit because it's not just people in America who care about what the Federal Reserve does. Uh, People who are in China and people in Europe do because America is one of the biggest customers for uh, businesses all around the world. So we saw growth all around the world slow down. And then the, the sort of like nice sort of growth process that it started in 2015 sort of like dipped. And it didn't go all the way into a recession, but it was a significant dip like for the United States right at the end of the 2015, especially for people who were in things like the oil industry or things like the, the what we call like the goods producing industry, which is like manufacturing, construction, equipment, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was a fairly, a fairly strong dip. And that happened because the Fed essentially spooked people and told them that they were going to raise interest rates to sort of stop the sort of global, the global growth story, like not just the growth story in the United States, but like sort of slow how much uh, growth was growing all around the world. And I think this is important for if you are listening to the weeds and you are freaked out about Donald Trump, which I, I, I think my guess is that's the typical audience here. I think important to understand because there was not at this time overt public controversy about this inside Democratic Party politics, right? But looking back on it, you had this interest rate hike in late 2015, uh, surge in the value of the dollar, fall in the price of certain commodities, flattening out, not a stock market crash, but the market had been going up for most of Obama's term, and then it went up again under Trump, but it it went flat sort of during the election season. Uh, Manufacturing, which had been going up, started going down again. Oil-related employment, investment in those fields started going down. So you had this kind of little like mini recession, specifically in sort of like macho, blue-collar, manly occupations at just the time that Trump is out there doing his, his campaign. And I would not by any means say you want to attribute like all of Donald Trump to this. But at the margin, if you're the incumbent president or if you're a pseudo incumbent like Hillary, what you want to say is like everything's going great. And a lot of trends, though, which had been going pretty well, suddenly were not going so well. Yeah. And I mean, that that's one of the things that that um, that we see. And so if you actually like listen to uh the the president's economist um, they'll they'll make a big deal about this so this is this is not a small part of of you know his election campaign and I'm sure listeners could be on either side of that but what we see is that like right before Donald Trump got elected lots and lots of indicators things that we call like um, new orders for investment were going down like Matt said manufacturing was going down and then kind of just after Trump was elected they started going back up um but a lot of that was because the Fed had made this mistake in 2015 they kind of realized it over the course of 2016 they said well we're sorry we're we're going to wait a little bit and then people started to get a little bit more confident and stock prices started going up again and so there was a lot of that that was just coincidence because of this. Although what's probably not coincidence, and you see this now, is that um, Donald Trump seems to be aware of this, <laughs> how this happened. And so he's been yelling at the Fed an enormous amount to try and get them to not do the same thing to him. as the right. <laughs> And I mean, this is interesting because I remember when Obama was president, I would sometimes ask people in the administration, I would ask them about you know, monetary policy stuff. I'd say, like, why 
like, don't you think the Fed should be doing more, helping out? And, you know, on the record, they would say, we don't comment about monetary policy. Off the record, they would also say, we don't comment about monetary policy. Like, they would not. And maybe I'm a bad journalist, but but I actually don't think so, right? If an administration wanted to, officially speaking, not mm-hmm. be commenting on this, but kind of put it out there mm-hmm. that they were mad, like, they could do that. They are communications professionals, and they were not doing that. It's not just my reporting. You can scour the archives. There is no indication that anyone on Team Obama uh, wanted the Fed to do anything. Now, maybe they did, but if they did, they they kept it to themselves, right? And Trump has been the opposite, right? right? He's like tweeting. He'll, he'll, he'll tell anybody who listens uh, <laughs> that he wants to keep the interest rates low. He wants the economy to grow. And this is contrary to the official ideology of how a president is supposed to relate to the central bank. Right. So the the worry that most economists have had, most macroeconomists have had at least over the last like 30 or 40 years is that like presidents would basically be doing the Trump thing like but perhaps like even more intensely. And the reason if you work it throughout it's kind of obvious because like we were saying if if you lower interest rates near an election that's good for you. If you raise them near election that's bad for you. So the president would always be pushing for interest rates to be lower when they're about to be elected. If you keep doing that, like at first it's good, unemployment goes lower, goes lower, goes lower. But after a while, you really do hit into that trade-off where it's a choice between are we going to have lower unemployment or are we going to have like lower inflation? And so you keep pushing the unemployment down and eventually inflation starts popping up. Um, a lot of people believe that's exactly what happened in the 70s is that like uh, Nixon wanted in unemployment to be low and kept pushing for it. And his Federal Reserve Chairman Arthur Burns delivered that at the cost of there being higher inflation. So that's been the line of macroeconomists is that like, well, presidents shouldn't have anything to do with this. We'll just we'll just sort of send it over and uh, trust it to the experts. Um, and apparently, I mean, as far as I can tell, and I, I've talked to people who were around then, not, not probably not the absolute highest levels, although I'm going to talk to Jason Furman about this. Um, and there just there wasn't a sense in the Obama administration that this this is what they should be doing, you know. Like, you know, Janet Yellen is smart and she's sort of running things and so we, we sort of trust her. Um, and, you know, they may have gotten bitten by that. Right. And so this <laughs> is an era where, you know, there are ideological differences between people but also temperamental ones. And this is where Obama and Trump are at like opposite poles, right? Like Obama was really into having people say he was doing things the right way, uh-huh. right? And Trump <laughs> doesn't care at all, right? right? So separate from the question of what do they think about the underlying policy, it's just like, you know, like if there's a taboo, if the bipartisan establishment thinks presidents shouldn't be messing with this, uh-huh. like Obama's going to really try not to. Uh-huh. And Trump, like he doesn't give a shit, right? Right. <laughs> And if you don't like Donald Trump's style of politics, the unfortunate fact for you, I think, (laughs) is that Trump is probably right on the merits about this. Right. Right? Like the economy had more room to grow in the last two years of Obama's administration than Jenny Yellen and his team gave it credit for. And looking back at, at the indicators, like how how would you have seen that, right? If you if you wanted to go back in time and be like, I'm gonna persuade you guys. And they're saying, oh, the unemployment rate's low. Like what's what's the data you could point to? Yeah. So the, the things that I, I tried to point to at the time were that um 
Inflation was low. Sort of our predictors of inflation going forward were low, um, despite the fact that unemployment had come down from what people thought was uh the sort of lowest it could get to, um, inflation hadn't picked up. But also, and I think this is really key, is that we saw that a lot of people had sort of like gone out of the workforce after the Great Recession. So it was before, and I'm so I don't have quite all my numbers on it, but I want to say something like just under like 70% of like all like American adults um, between the ages of like 24 and 54 were looking for a job or had a job. And then during the Great Recession, that number sort of dropped down to somewhere around like 62%, somewhere in that range. Um, and the question was, like, are these people, have they just, you know, have they retired? Have they given up on life? You know, what's going on with them? Um, and a lot of the experts sort of settled on, well, we're not sure what's going on with them, but we think they're they're kind of a lost cause. Like, they're not going to come back. Um, and that, that was something that I, I fought really hard against. Um in part just because, uh, I don't know, personal stuff, I don't want to go in here or whatever. But um, a lot of the people um, were on disability when we looked at the roles. But we know that like for, for a lot of people, that's sort of like a sort of cushion that helps them when, when essentially they have no other options, when they have no – when they can't find a job, they can't find any solution to their problems, uh, one of the things they could go on is, is, is go on disability. So I thought that if if the economy was strong again, if the economy was, was healthy again, those people would come back to work. And, and even people who had been injured, even people who had, had, had real injuries, whatever, if the economy was strong enough, employers would be willing to like make accommodations for them. They'd be willing to find ways to work with them. And so that was true for people who had gone out because they were disabled, maybe people who had, had like trouble with the law, maybe people who had other things that would drag them out of the economy. If the economy was strong enough, I thought people were uh, employers would find a way to work with those people. Disability is a great example yeah. of I think how we as a society end up uh, underrating the significance of these issues. Because right. essentially, what happened was you had a recession, uh -huh. you had the number of people on disability insurance go up, uh -huh. and so then you had critics on the right saying, "Oh, look, there's this like sudden mysterious surge in the number of disabled people. Uh -huh. Clearly, the welfare state is too generous." Right. And then you had liberals whose predilection is the opposite of that. Uh -huh. And they start looking at these cases and saying, no, 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 lots of these disabled people uh, really do have problems. Uh -huh. And, you know, you guys are being assholes. <laughs> like, let disabled people get their disability insurance, right? right? And so you have this whole argument that is playing out, which is sort of about disability insurance, is really just about, like, big picture, is the welfare state a good idea? Uh -huh. Right. In which conservatives want to say, no, we have economic problems because the welfare state exists. And you have progressives saying, no, like people need this help. Uh -huh. And this kind of other axis, which is that like, yeah, what 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 was happening uh -huh. was that because people couldn't find work uh -huh. of the people who couldn't find work, the people who were having physical difficulties right. were going on disability insurance. Right. But ultimately, there were like a billion papers written about how to reform disability insurance. None of those changes happened. Right. Uh, none of the stuff people on the left wanted was done. None of the stuff people on the right wanted was done. And now, mysteriously, the roles are going down. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that comes back to the, uh, the thing that we were talking about in the beginning when I said that, you know, um, real capitalism hasn't been tried. Because those are the exact types of debates that people get mired in when the real problem is that 
employment markets aren't tight enough, that employers are not out there like searching for people with a job. Because uh, the things that people on the right like thought should happen, which is that, okay, everybody who is like able to work, that some employers should be able to find them a job and connect them if we just sort of put the person out there. Um, that wasn't happening for people because we were in this like slow recovery where the number of people looking for work outnumbered the number of people who were working. And so this fundamental aspect that's important for the entire sort of right of center ideology to work was just missing. And so even, even if you thought, well, look, these people could be gainfully employed. They weren't going to be unless employers are motivated to find some way to use employers who are maybe not perfect or might, don't have everything in a resume exactly the way they want. And so that's that's precisely why we get sort of bogged down in what I think are you know useless ideological debates when the real problem is that we don't have an economy that's um, running fast enough. And I think I mean <laughs> the number one. Example of this to me, but it's funny because people get turned around. Is mm -hmm. you had for a long time an economy that was kind of weak, mm -hmm. and so then you had this incredible rhetoric around a skills gap right. or a mismatch, right? And companies were saying, "Well, I can't find any, I can't find any welders," uh -huh. right? And then progressive people would yell at them and be like, "Well, why aren't you paying the welders more?" Uh -huh. um, but then the employers, I mean, I think like, well, they don't want to pay. Well, there's more like they would lose money, right? Right, And so you just kind of settled into this equilibrium where companies, I mean, there just aren't in life, like uh -huh. super trained, incredibly qualified people bouncing around, uh -huh. like looking to take low wage jobs, <laughs> right? Right. But this sentiment came up that somehow to make the economy work, we needed some way to, to change that. Right, right to like generate some pool of like I don't know what like unemployed neurosurgeons exactly. who are going to go get work, and I think now we're starting to see like how a functioning economy actually addresses this, which is that empl employers get a little bit more motivated. Right, no, I think that's exactly right. And so, like in in economics itself, so I don't know how people experience this, but we use it like really like weird sort of things we talk about, about like, you know, expectations and people have these expectations. We even get into stuff that Matt was talking about, like, you know, different equilibria that the economy can fall into. But I, I think this is something that's really kind of like um, familiar to people, which is something like basically like culture and like habits and the way people behave, right? And so if you're a manager and you have been managing for like seven years through the Great Recession, you're really used to the fact that for every application you get, Seven people apply, and of that seven, you like one. You know, this person is pretty good. They they have everything that you want, and so you, you select them and you throw away the rest. And they go about managing as if like that's just the way of the world, right? That's what happens when you when you put out a job. And so they find themselves in a position where they put out an application and they only get three people back, and maybe one of them is not good. The immediate thing they say is, "What's wrong with the world?" There are not enough good people out there. Can you please do something to get more good people? But the thing about it is, is, is that that's not the only way you can approach the situation. You can think about who has a lot of potential. Who can I train? How can I find pools of workers of people who I would not have otherwise talked to? How can I go to maybe minority groups or other groups who are not otherwise connected to my network in order to find new people? And they're not thinking like that because – for all the years they've been a manager, they didn't have to do any of those things. And, they, I, yeah. and I also think, you know, <laughs> most of us in life, uh, we're not good at everything. Right. Right. So one thing you might be good at as a manager uh -huh. is like squeezing people. 
<laughs> right? Uh, or, or at least, I, I think one reason this is a skill is that like normal human beings try to be nice and try uh, to be well liked, right? But in a weak labor market, something you can do right. is take advantage of the fact that people don't have good outside employment true. options and like really, really put the squeeze on, them, <laughs> right? And so, if that becomes a valued skill, right. organizations, successful companies, start promoting and cultivating. That's exactly right. In managers, right? Uh, and if you have the opposite, right, a, a persistently tight labor market in which labor is scarce, a different set of skills, right, like coaching and mentoring people, right. you know, being really good at seeing a potential uh, when it's not on the resume, building effective training programs, suddenly that becomes something that's that's valued. When like, w what would the point have been? Right. In 2011, of having a bunch of managers who were really charismatic motivators right. and, no. and good at training, because uh -huh. like nobody needed that. No, I think that's exactly right, and that that's one of the things that like I think at least in culture, when one of the things that made me passionate about this for years um, is I did I did come of age in the 90s, which was which was you know an exceptionally good labor market. And I said probably can't always be like that. But but what I did understand is that like people's sort of expectations about like their lives and their futures changed. And a lot of that was because of the stuff that Matt was talking about. So like what managers were telling you, what companies were telling you, like when you when you went out to get a job is like we see all the potential in you. And this is how we're going to put you on a track to like, you know, achieve all your dreams. And this is how we're going to do all of this. And so just the entire sort of environment that like workers found them in was much more positive and much more centered around like how can you make the best out of yourself than they were for the entire period I saw after that. And so getting back to that, it was key like not just to, you know, wages and things like that, but all the sort of softer things about life are embedded in whether or not it's profitable for employers to build you up or whether or not it's profitable for them to like squeeze you for as much as they can get. And so creating a world in where it's profitable to build people up is just enormous in like this, building the kind of society that we want. And so, uh, you know, for my part as macroeconomist, I thought it was like worth a significant amount of risk on on inflation. I mean, I'll be honest, like I actually did not even – like the economy has been able to take up even more slack than I probably would have guessed like if I was in 2010. But what I did know is that like we weren't pushing it to the max and we weren't pushing it to the max we could see that for a lot of reasons. One is we could just see it in the attitudes of employers. We could just see it the way they, they were treating their workers. They weren't treating them like they were a scarce resource they needed to invest in and they needed to like take care of. They were treating them like they were disposable. And that is just ground zero to tell us that we're not in a tight labor market. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. 
You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. For a lot of this period, Barack Obama was president. Uh-huh. There's a lot of critics broadly on the right, some some in the center of, of what was going on. And it's hard to even remember, but like there was this incredible fad for like a theory that video games yeah. were making people not have jobs um that you know like somehow the dodd frank bill <laughs> is why people didn't have jobs that um because you could get health insurance mm-hmm. now people wanted to not work anymore ha- yeah just like people weren't going to work right i mean this was like a really big thing there were like a million different explanations right. but it was all something other than demand yeah, and I don't, you know, my sense of that is that people can wrap their minds around these sort of like really sort of mechanical explanations. So one of the one of the issues that a lot of people that that I'm friends with that I work with would say is, um, you know, they, they would they would seriously make something of either the the video game argument or some sort of argument about millennial men. So how how was this video game? <laughs> I, I think it's worth dwelling on because it was it, this got further than you would think in, in reputable think. circles and was like. Empirical economics run amok. Yes. Is that people would people would sort of measure the quality of video games. So we have these, you know, PlayStation systems. I don't I don't even know all about them, but you have these these systems where you can play dedicated video games, PlayStation, Xbox, stuff like that. Um, and they were getting way better just around the time that um that the recession hit. And so people did like these statistical analysis and they said, ah, okay, so right at the time when video games get a lot better, that's when we see a lot of millennial men dropping out of the workforce. And then we go ask them what they're doing and they say, well, we're playing video games. The idea that like, okay, so maybe they're playing video games because they can't find a job, right? So I mean that's you know, that's kind of like what what the next best thing for them to do is um was sort of shoved aside. And also, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much you're gonna <laughs> harp on my my upsetness about this, but like no one was saying, as they might have in the nineties, hey, let's put some video game machines in your work. Like like if it really was, if it really was this thing of like that um Millennial, millennial young men just love their video game. They couldn't do without it. Then somebody would have thought that the way to get these workers, if we really need them, was to put video games in the office. And nobody thought that. Nobody cared at all. And so that's a sign that what's really going on here is that there's not enough sort of like demand from employees to even give these people a chance. Not that they have a chance, but they're deciding not to take it because it's more fun to stay at home and play video games. Yeah, so there's basically this huge 
reverse causation, right? So right. people are looking at the younger cohort of people because – so these are people you have less – Attachment to the labor force right. is the what what they say in, in the technical term. You're you're new on the job market. You have trouble finding a job, uh, in part because you're having trouble finding a job. You are living with your parents. Uh -huh. You're playing a lot of video games. Uh -huh. You maybe become a drug addict, uh -huh. right? And so if you look at it through the wrong lens of the telescope, you're like, aha! We have this generation of bums. Uh -huh. They're living at home, addicted to heroin. And of course they don't want jobs uh -huh. because you can live in mom's basement and like it's a tragedy because we're starting to see, right, as as the job market gets stronger and stronger, it's like you see all these processes go into reverse, right? right? Uh, not that people don't play video games anymore, right. but like, yeah, if you have a job, you don't have as much time to play video games. Right. But like the basics of human life where people would rather not be unemployed. You know, remain with us. Yeah, remain with us, and 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 I mean that's another. I mean that's another thing. And I mean, I don't know this could be a whole other show. We're getting into like fights with like, some of the empirical economists about this. That like um, people are basically the same. Like okay, so there in any generation there are different types of people, and some people you know really like to work and in conscientious, and some people are not so much. But like over time, over generation to generation, sort of mix of people. Is is more or less the same, and that's something that, that that I put forward. And so, like some of these explanations for anything that depend upon human nature, sort of like altering or changing or being different somehow than it was in the past, should be treated with like huge skepticism. That's that's not to say that we don't have big social movements that change the way we look at things, but that like the sort of core drives that people have are probably the same that they had 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago. And yes, every generation thinks there's something wrong with the kids, but that's the thing. Every generation thinks there's something wrong with the kids. And the thing is, they're probably more or less just like you were, except about something else, about something new. Yeah. Well, and I think it's always <laughs> worth noting how much of a cyclical element there is, b driven by the business cycle, uh -huh. to this kind of Social commentary, right? Uh -huh. So 1990, there was a recession. Uh -huh. And that's when uh, Richard Linklater's movie Slacker comes out. And like the slacker as a personality type, you know, comes okay. into being, right? Uh -huh. And this was the the video game addict of 30 years ago. Uh -huh. But then we look back on what we know from the rest of the 90s and we're like, yeah, there was a recession. Uh -huh. It's like right. pe people have more free time. Right. Um, the other place where you see this, though, is technology. Right. Uh -huh. The robots were taking our jobs. Uh -huh. And I think ultimately it gets to where, where the left gets this wrong. Right. But like labor saving technology is supposed to be good. Right. And so uh, one, so I don't know. So, so I don't know exactly all the setup you want here. But like um, one of the other things that people people can be afraid of. So a lot of people are concerned. Well, maybe people aren't going to work. The other thing is, well, maybe just fundamentally some people are like no longer employable because a robot went and took your job. Well, in the same way that we talked about, all right, entrepreneurs ought to be out there trying to like get workers who are disabled and find a way to work with them. People ought to be able to think about new ways in which you can use like workers who were otherwise in employed in another industry. And so it can seem like, and you know, economists over time, Paul Krugman people have had trouble trying to explain this. It can seem almost like magic that somehow when say manufacturing jobs go away that like magically like service jobs seem to like go up just to manage just to match the number of manufacturing jobs that go away but it's not magic it's like entrepreneurship and people trying to make money people are trying to figure out or at least in a, an economy that's 
in your capacity or economy that's that's running well, people are always trying to figure out, well, what's some new way that I can hire a bunch of people and use that to make money? And so there's always someone thinking about, like, how do we use some extra people that we could have? And so as any sort of labor-saving technology comes along, they feed people out of those jobs and then entrepreneurs pick them up. And if that sounds like wildly like utopian, I can see from the last 20 years because we didn't have a tight labor market. But if you look at periods where people really thought technology was changing everything, like the late 90s, that's precisely when um, we had jobs for like almost everybody out there. And again, the causality tends to go the other way, that like when employers are having a hard time finding people for work, then they become the most interested in figuring out ways to save labor. And so we can get ourselves wrapped up in thinking that, well, you know, these labor-saving technologies are going to drive people out of a job. But really, like people like leaving for other jobs is one of the biggest drivers for employers getting labor-saving technology. Right. So this is where is sort of the gap between like a simple economics textbook and the real world, but then back to the simple textbook, <laughs> right? Because it's like in the simple textbook, okay, new technology increases productivity. Uh -huh. Because productivity is higher, you can pay people more. Right. Right. But then people have I think, spent much of the past 20 years looking around and being like, well, I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> my boss isn't going to just pay me more. Right. Right. What's going to happen is if they can get by without as much work, they're going to lay some people off. Right. Or it could be technology or it could be trade. Right. We're going to close the factory. We're going to reopen in China. Or we're going to just threaten to do that. Uh -huh. Right. If you guys get too 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 antsy, start asking for wages, we're going to be like, well, you know, they'll do it in Shenzhen for, for half. Right. Uh -huh. And we really were in that kind of world. Right. And it breeds bec – because people don't think about like the Federal Reserve uh -huh. and the intricacies of macro, it, it breeds a politics uh -huh. that's built around worrying about this kind of stuff, right? But now when you have a world where you see um, – if like a bunch of people are leaving their fast food job because it doesn't pay that well uh – -huh. And now you're scrambling and you got to find more people or you need to raise pay. It's like now you're looking for the good technology. Exactly. That will let you support your business. Exactly. And I think I think that's exactly right. And so um, so even even when, you know, even when I was so I was a, so before I was a columnist, I was a professor for a little while. And even then, like so the textbooks would sort of like skip over this part. But I would always add in just like a, a brief blurb about the Federal Reserve because I understood that like this this was like sort of like the missing piece here. So you would say something like, let's talk about trade, which like everybody is, was afraid of or is afraid of at some point in time. Um, actually, surprising, Donald Trump was making them less afraid. But at one point in time, everybody was afraid that trade was You China. were in North Carolina, right? Yeah. So I mean, because that was the, there was a real, real direct trade impact. Yeah, it was a real, it was a real, it was a real trade impact from um, you know textiles and other things going overseas. And so I described it as this: okay, so what's going to happen is if they move jobs over uh, overseas, then that's going to cause sort of like textile like prices to go down because like labor's cheaper and everything's cheaper coming into the United States. What that's going to do is make inflation a little bit lower. What that's going to do is make the Federal Reserve say, ah, we have more room to like expand the economy. So they'll try to expand the economy. And that will encourage a totally different set of businesses, not the ones that left, to go out and look for more people to hire. 
and they'll hire those people who came from the textile jobs. And if the economy is tight and moving, that process actually works. But if it's not tight, it breaks down. And so the very thing that people are afraid of, that these jobs will move overseas and they don't have nothing left, really does happen. And so it's it's also not surprising that like in the sort of period where um, the economy was slack, people's perceptions of like trade and things like that got more and more sort of like frightened and more and more, there was more and more of a sense that like perhaps trade is going to be so damaging to our community that it will, it will never, it will never recover. And I think what happened there is that in, in large part, is that we didn't have an economy that was prepared to pick up the people who were displaced by all of this like transition. Right. So we saw older people go to that sort of Trumpian uh-huh. populism, isolationism. It's not a free markety worldview, but uh-huh. it's still wedded to like America's traditions right. and national identity and maybe excessively <laughs> wedded to Americanism. <laughs> um, but we've had younger people, right? Like everybody who's more than two years younger than me these days has I, well, so they're they're socialists now, right. right? And some of that is just Bernie Sanders, but I think some of it is very like very serious. Like there's been uh, a big, real intellectual revival of hardcore anti-capitalist thinking that would have been totally unimaginable. Like when I started college in 1999, uh-huh. like n- nobody would have said that. And, and, you, and you could feel that, right? So, so um, I mean, I had, I, you know, I had a similar experience. So I was like, come out around that time, but like in the in the nineteen nineties, like like people didn't want to like seize the means of production; they wanted to like create like the, like the new means of production because it really seemed like you could. It really seemed like that um, people were going to Silicon Valley or they're going to, and they were like creating new things that were going to be available for the economy. So for the last you know twenty years or so, there's been some of that. But it's been so far away from what like the average sort of student or person could do. I mean like – so there are a lot of people that I knew who were like – you know, they were in economics or they were in maybe even political science and stuff. And then when the 90s came, there was like such a demand for this that you would see like JavaScript for dummies just like laid out across the, <laughs> the dorm. Like everybody has this, right? Because because the 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 demand for, for somebody who's going to work on things that are going to that are going to be like new in tech or whatever is so intense, and people are coming to you, and they don't quite care what your qualifications are. They don't quite care what you. They even literally like give out these paper tests and say, "Can anybody show us how to code?" And if you could, boom, you had a job. Um, and so you're in an environment where you're very clearly connected to what's going to be like the next big thing and what's going to be like this. And now we have like exactly the opposite of that, where it seems like it's it's far away for most students, it's walled off. It's like a world that like maybe you see on television, but you could never get into. And that feeds a sense that like, um, you know, that prosperity is never going to touch me. It has nothing to do with me. And like if we want things to get better, then like screw it. We're going to go and take it and like like, like make it better. And, uh, and I think that is real. I mean, you know, it seems real to me. And this is where instead of coming sort of as much on the, on the trade side, you see a real renewal of interest in labor market regulations, right? right? Or in um, welfare state stuff, you know, which has always been with us and is always a debate, but right, it, it, an incredible doubling down on the idea, um, universal basic income, for right. example, right, which is, you know, there's a lot of strains to that. But part of it, at least in, in the contemporary era, has been this sense that like, maybe 
the mainstream economy is just not going to work for most people. Right. Right. So instead of having like programs to help people with specific problems, like everybody just needs money. Yeah, so so that's one thing UBI, you know, like universal basic income that everybody might get money. Even people in Silicon Valley, you've seen push this kind of stuff. Um, so even the people who were the closest to emerging technology didn't well, have because they've been really big on the <laughs> idea that that maybe all these problems are because their technology is too good. Right. Right. Like that's <laughs> that, that's been a lot of the Silicon Valley UBI interest, right? Uh, is you're sitting there, like you personally are rich. Uh, the people who are working for you, they've got good jobs. Uh-huh. But you can see that like people are mad. The people, you're right. And so you're worried about that. And so the Silicon Valley people are worried about that. And they're having exactly the opposite experience of people who in the 1990s who were trying to build out these organizations and just couldn't find workers fast enough. So the Silicon Valley billionaires of the last like 10 years or whatever have had this fear, oh my God, maybe we're going to make so much profits. None of the, Nobody else is going to make any money. There, there's going to be mass unemployment and then the pitchforks are going to come and take away our companies. So they have this UBI stuff. So often, I don't know like, you know, may, how, how you feel about this, but that really reminds me of the negative experience with persistent unemployment is like, a special attempts to like heavily regulate like big business. Like so maybe you're for some, but I know Elizabeth Warren has this stuff that like it's sort of modeled on some things that were done like in Europe and in Germany and stuff like that. And one of the things that like Europe went through was a long period in the 80s, early 90s and stuff that had like this like really slow job market where people who and we in economics we would say people who were insiders, people who had jobs before the sort of sluggishness of like the late 70s, 80s, and early 90s came, they were fine. But people who were just sort of like coming into the job market after that, they had like no way in. And so like regulations after regulations were sort of like put on to somehow encourage companies and unions to like work with like this sort of younger like cohort of people who, who were coming in. And to me, it seems like there, there, there's, there's also a push for that in America. It's not quite the same sort of insider-outsider dynamic that it is in Europe. But there is a sense that lots of people in the millennial generation just like don't have the same chances that people did before. And so you can see why they would say, well, look, the system is rigged and we need to like totally do something to like um, to make it different. You see some of this, I think, in the kind of new politics of the minimum wage, right? Where right. if you have a depressed labor market, uh-huh. um, it's in one sense bad for business, but in another sense, like your profit margins go up. Right. Because you don't are under a lot of pressure to pay people. And one thing that becomes true if your profit margins have just gone up for no real reason uh-huh. is that if the government makes you pay people more, like you – you can do it. You can do right? it. Like, it doesn't actually shut all the stores right. down. And all this stuff that you would find in a textbook about thinking at the margin and uh, blah, 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 it's not true right. because you're not actually operating. You're not operating at the margin. Businesses all collectively are not, like, producing as much as they possibly could produce. Um, and so it's true that, like, if you can somehow, like – push a little bit more like money into the economy. And one way to do that, I mean, if you have a business that's profitable and they're saving some of their profits, is force them to like spend down their savings on workers' wages. Well, actually, that sort of like just pushing money into the economy could make things grow a little bit more. And then they would the the workers you paid would have a little bit more money and they would buy a little bit more stuff. And so you could use these sort of ways to like sort of ignite the uh, uh, local economies. And the real problem there is that like they're 
slightly depressed all the time. And so they need some sort of infusion. And if the Federal Reserve is not doing it, then a law that basically makes them spend their savings on workers will do it. Yeah. Right. And so Gaudi Egertsen from, from Brown, he has this like whole series of papers on like the paradox of this, the paradox of that. And he he's sort of reading this the other way. But this is his point, is that when you have a prolonged depressed economy, uh-huh. all of these things that an economics class would normally tell you are bad ideas uh-huh. can kind of work, right? right? <laughs> and so, you know, if you if you are on the left or you just like sort of want to be in a coalition with left-wing people, uh-huh. this is sort of good, <laughs> right? Because suddenly you can be friends with all kinds of, you know, hippies and, and weirdo populists uh-huh. and like, actually, this will be great. Uh-huh. But if you're on the center, right, yeah. it's it's bad, right? <laughs> and suddenly all your wonk technocrat knowledge is being made false. Right. And like all your good points about these self-defeating regulations are like not really true. true anymore. And I think this is interesting because I feel like the predominant sense in the recession years was the opposite, right? That there was this – you actually really see this from the European Central Bank. But uh-huh. it's like, aha, the recession is a good opportunity to like make everybody do my good technocratic reforms. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually, at least it seems to me, it's a really bad time really to bad. try to make people do that because <laughs> they won't work. Yeah, they won't work. And and anyone who bucks the trend will have like an obvious sort of like benefit from that. And I think in many cases did can potentially discredit like everything you're saying. Um, and so I don't even, I don't know how much that got out to you know the general the general audience whatever but there was there was a fierce sort of fight among economists who were like just years ago been like friends on the side about most things about whether or not essentially this was a good time right after the recession to make economies do all these things that for years that they thought that we should do and um I mean, I guess you ended up on the side being right that this was like a totally horrible idea that like when the that when the economy was on fire, that essentially what you need to do was just like make all of that better, right? And even if that meant like sort of spending a little bit more money than economists usually advise is smart or even if that meant like uh, letting inflation run high or other sorts of things like that, you need to like get the situation under control. Or else, all these sort of like smart, like efficiency building mechanisms that you wanted were going to backfire because like the economy is already depressed. And then when you make it a little bit more efficient, well, then you need like even fewer workers and people than you would have before. And so that's going to like depress it some more. And so you get into like a self-defeating cycle that you that's going to like undermine people's belief in the very reforms that you're trying to do. Right, because this is the whole original kind of rhetoric, right, of supply-side economics uh-huh. that you may have heard of. And this has gotten tied up in the specifics of tax policy, right? But the whole idea, right, this was the, the right-wing reform agenda of the early 80s was we have this high inflation uh-huh. in the 70s, right? And we need to address it with these pro-market reforms uh-huh. that will increase the the supply, literally, uh-huh. of human labor, of business capital, uh-huh. we'll let more people do more stuff. And something like that that we did do is like let Uber get into the taxi market, uh-huh. right? And prices will come down. But those kind of reforms make sense. They make the most sense politically 
when when, not, when inflation is high, exactly. not when not when you have a you know ten percent unemployment. Exactly, exactly. It's not. It's not. There's if you put more people out there, if you get more people like interested in working and trying to work, all you're going to do is in where an environment where employers had seven applications for every opening, now they have nine applications for any opening. And maybe that's a little bit better for the employers, but it doesn't do anything for the employees. And ultimately, you need employers and employees working together to get the economy going. Yeah. So. I feel like I I know people on the left well. This is this is the the world that I know. And there was a certain blindness to some of this stuff because people have ethical objections to capitalism right. and they were glad uh, I I don't want to say they were glad to see people uh not doing well, but they were it fulfilled their expectations. Exactly. <laughs> they they think that the system is wrong. Uh -huh. And so for it to also not function <laughs> was like in line with their view, right? right? And so they say, aha, like this shows I was right all along. Uh, maybe in, in 1999, I was reading Juliet Shore on the overworked American and, you know, reading No Logo and talking about how we're buying stuff we don't really need. Uh, but now it's like, yeah, the, the economy's in collapse. So, <laughs> so it's all good. But like, what's, What's up with the right? I, I have been – was very surprised to see people who are more conservative than I am being so uh, blasé about letting the market economy not function. I mean, I think there's a complex uh, web of things going on there. But like, you know, if I could make it as simple as possible, I would say there are a couple things happening. One is that like a lot of sort of like um, – Conservative or center right, like Republican activist, or like had come of had come of age during the seventies and had come of age during all the supply side stuff, and so that's just kind of what they knew as rhetoric, and they didn't have any sort of like deeper understanding for like why this worked or like why you know I mean we, we can argue about whether it works. I don't want to get pay too much, but like why you thought that like this could have resulted in an economic boom then, but wouldn't now. So they didn't have any of that that they were working with, number one. Number two is that like because um, Barack Obama had become president, um, there was this sense that, oh, now we're going to be doing all of these like horrible left-wing things and the economy can't possibly work when you're doing like horrible left-wing things. And so anything that you try to do is ultimately going to backfire. Um, and just that, I mean, just that sort of like self, like, like defeatist, you know, internal monologue, I think was just like super central to to lots of the people on the right, on the center right, on their thinking about it. I mean, people that, that like I debated in mostly sort of right-wing or center right-wing forums, they had like no interest in like, you know, sort of like, projecting for the left or trying to like make the left mm -hmm. look bad. We were just arguing about what do we believe, right? Their 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 fundamental thing was like all of these horrible Obama programs are going through. So isn't it inevitable that the economy is going to be bad, that basically that what people think of as like the supply side or the fundamental productive capacity economy was, was shrinking. So they were like super primed to believe this. And then when there was any sort of like economic like justification or argument to say maybe the supply side is shrinking, they just jumped on it. And they were like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. We knew it was going to happen. You elected a socialist and boom, you're dead. Right. Like the <laughs> so, you have, so, you have, so you have left wing intellectuals who believe in their hearts that capitalism can't work. And then you have right wing intellectuals who believe in their heart that like expansion of the welfare state 
can't work, work. Yeah, uh-huh. right? And so then you have like 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 lonely center left <laughs> meliorist Barack Obama out there on an island. But then what's weird is that he too is not really trying to make this work. Right. And to me, just as a journalist, this to me is like the great like unanswered question of what happened in the past decade of American politics because you have seemingly the stakeholders who are psychologically well positioned uh-huh. to want to be cheerleaders for themselves uh-huh. like also going in on like some weird stuff like Obama said a couple times that like he thought there was unemployment because of uh, ticket kiosks at the airlines and because of ATMs and things like that and it's a it's a weird one because I, Nobody should be wrong about anything ever. Right. Right. I mean, that's my view. Let's be right all the time. (laughs) But the people who are really have no excuse for being too down on the Obama era economic policy trajectory are the people who were making those policies. Right. Right. People don't like Trump. Right. But one thing that he's really gotten correct is that because Trump thinks Trump's policies are good. Right. Trump believes that the Fed should make Trump's policies look good. Right. No, there is that. And so, I mean, I don't know, like, you know, I want to whatever, but like a thing that I would describe as having gone wrong about like the last decade is a far is too much. And I mean it took me a long while to get here, but it's sort of too much trust in the sort of like um establishment like intellectual thing in America working. And it's not that like, so a lot of, I think a lot of people who are like outside the establishment have this idea that the establishment is just corrupt. And like, um, at least on the right they do. They think the establishment is corrupt. Um, and that's not true. You know, I, th- I think they're, they're mostly full of people who are trying to do their best to figure out the world and do the right thing. But they come into it with a whole set of biases and a whole set of like preconceived notions about the way the world works. And when the world changes on them or when something big changes on them, there's a huge long argument about like minutia about like, well, maybe it's this and maybe it's this. And and not at all a look is like, well, maybe, maybe, maybe we're just like going about this the fundamentally wrong way. And like there are a lot of things wrong with Trump, but like one one thing that he's done is just say like, you guys are you guys are going about this all the wrong way. Just like throw everything apart. Um, and that like creates this sort of like environment in which people are like People who were kind of like, you know, iconoclasts, whatever, like you could say, well, yeah, actually, you see, we see we were doing everything the wrong way. And if we start thinking about this a different way, then we can have some progress. And that doesn't necessarily mean you do all the the crazy things that this guy's saying, but like, but like there, there's some things that you can do that will that that uh that that really will help things. So that that process I think has been um in some ways beneficial. Okay, that's great. <laughs> No, and I, and I think that's that's like a, a pretty good a pretty good place to stop it. But you, so you, you've you've got the got the PhD in economics, uh-huh. real academic credentials. Uh, we got those vacancies on the Fed. So you know, Trump, if you're listening, you know, give give Carl a call. He's gonna make you look good. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks, uh, as always, to our producer Jeffrey Geld and the Weeds. Uh, it's gonna be back on Tuesday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. 
Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.